0: Today I'm joined, um, at very last, because uh, this, this has been a long time coming, uh, by Ben Sixsmith. He is uh, an English writer in Poland, Anglo writer. I don't exactly know if you're specifically English, but I'll, I'll just go with that. Uh, he's written for The Spectator, for Unheard, for The Critic, uh, Colette, and The American Conservative, among, I know, many, many other places. Um, and his latest book is uh, Naughty's, uh, 11 Echoes of a Dismal Decade. Welcome, Ben.
1: Thank you for
0: having me. Yeah, it's it's really great to have you on. I've been um, a long time admirer of your work, um, uh, even of of your persona as well, because you're you've kind of managed to um, to in a way protect yourself. I don't know if this is the the, the best way to describe it. You are. Um, a man of many talents. Obviously, you write for a living. Um, people know a little bit about you, but you've not really. You don't really have like a cult of personality type brand. You're not like in the center of your brand. You have intellectual output that you promote through who you are, but it's not like okay, you know, it's uh, people are not like beefing with Ben Sixsmith. You're not kind of like one of those. Um, there, there is no need in our communities to have a very specific opinion, a pro or con opinion against or, or, you know, uh, pro bent six mix. So I think that's, that's quite a, uh, an achievement because I feel like the internet is something that kind of tries to draw out the intimate out of people. And I've, I've, I feel this kind of tension myself all the time. Like people are asking me like, do, do vlogs, show us your home. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't want to show you my home. So I don't know, at least to me, that's, kind of a a, an accomplishment do you feel that
1: thank you yeah I'm I mean I think it's to some extent deliberate not so much to protect myself but I think um, I'm painfully aware that most of who I am is not especially interesting (laughs) Uh, so I try and maximize the parts of myself which might be interesting and then the other parts which you know could be pretty much anybody else uh, and aren't really worth speaking about I try and keep offline uh, because it, I, I was thinking about having, a you know, my own podcast or something like that one time. And then I thought, you know, I think once I'm not speaking outside of a 800 words on the page, people are just going to get very tired of what I have to say. So I try and limit uh, other people's exposure to me because anything else uh, could quickly grate.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's... Um... You know, that's kind of your very English, very measured uh, approach to who you are as a as a person. <laughs> I mean, this is obviously this is your um your judgment on the situation. I feel like a lot of people just put out podcasts, you know, you know, just oh, sidestepping that consideration that, you know, people people, you know, if they're interested, they're going to uh tune in, they're gonna download it <laughs> and whatever. And if not, it's um I don't know, for, for me it's just like a an, an a fun exercise um kind of it's an interesting medium because it's not like you're writing an article, but you're also uh, engaging in some sort of intellectual activity. Um, and it's kind of a, a duet. It's kind of a tandem. Mm. I don't know. I feel like uh, it's, it's worth it in itself. Um, and the fact that other people are listening to it adds to it in a way. I don't know. I, I don't know what I think about it. but um, I, I think, think it, when
1: you're a good interviewer, it's very different. There was an English comedian called Peter Cook. Uh, who was exceptionally good at being interviewed. So one day he thought, well, why don't I be the interviewer? So he had his own show interviewing people, and it's one of the biggest television flops in (laughs) uh, British history because he just didn't know what to ask people. Uh, And I don't think I'd be a very good interviewer. Uh, So I think if if you're a good interviewer, then it's definitely worth it. Uh, but otherwise, you have to you have to be very interesting yourself to you know carry it alone, and that's that's a rare talent.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a completely different beast having a solo podcast, having an interview podcast. And also it's, it's very hard to find good information because I try to like self-develop in the, in the realm of interviewing now that I've been doing this for, for a long time and I've been looking for sources of, you know, what is the, you know, the book to read if you want to be an interviewer. There's surprisingly little information about how to do it. Uh, It's more, you know, do you just observe, just watch a lot of Larry King and then, I guess it's through osmosis of the medium one becomes a good interviewer, or I guess maybe it 's just com- completely you know born uh, and then no, no you know the other people don't have a chance um, anyway if this is your if this is your idea about about how to uh, promote yourself I think, I think you're doing a really good job, and i think it's um, um, i think it's it's an interesting um, it's an interesting perspective on because essentially why I'm asking you this, because I've actually noticed this in your newsletter, which I, I read all the time and it's very good. And I recommend people do read it from your Substack, stack, uh, the zone um, people should uh, tune into the zone. Um, I I actually have the quote here and I, I was, I was thinking about this myself just yesterday. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's kind of, you, you're, con- you're contrasting this idea of, um, of selling intellectual output versus selling your persona. Um, and, um, you know, you say here that the problem is that if you are the product rather than the creator of a product, you can't be happy and functional uh, or you will get boring. People want you to fuck up. It's more intriguing than success. And this kind of brings me back to what I've seen happening on kind of the on my beat on the scene that I cover, uh, which is this constant infighting, uh, especially now that a lot of, you know, there's, there's more attention paid to the so-called dissident right or whatever you know, corner of Twitter, we want to call it. Um, there's been a recent uh, Vanity Fair article, you know, kind of being kind of a like, very long scene report was surprisingly friendly as well. So people, I feel, have started to use this as a, as a good opportunity for schism, for more beefing, for all this type of stuff. Uh, and it feel, I feel like it's, it's quite detrimental to the scene. So I don't know. Do you have any, any thoughts on what's been going on in that direction? Well,
1: I mean, we have to be critical of each other because otherwise it's just a hug box and, you know, you have endless bad takes floating around. But when it becomes a kind of status game where everyone's just scratching to get to the top and they just want to drag down whoever's above them so that they can elevate themselves, that becomes extremely unhealthy. And also, just drama has a way of replicating itself. Uh, there was this uh, American radio show called Opie and Antony, where uh, the big appeal was just constant fighting and fighting and fighting. But if you, if you look at where their lives are now post-show, it's like everybody who was on the show, their, their personal lives are in ruins, their professional lives are just catastrophic, because all they could do was endlessly beef with each other. Uh, and eventually you just it, it escalates to the point where People are ruining each other's lives. So, uh, drama becomes its own beast, I guess, which is why I, why I try and stay out of
0: it. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I've been trying relatively uh, successfully to stay out of it myself. But sometimes you just yeah you, you kind of get dragged into it. Uh, and at, at one point, I think after you get to a certain size of platform, if you're not presenting your ideas in a in a very kind of a Straussy and very neutral way. Uh, you know, trying to not be controversial, um, you get dragged into drama whichever way. You know, because you you become kind of this uh, thing that people need to have a position towards. Uh, and I like the fact that when you when you write a tweet, it's in, invariably in joke form. So it's it kind of it it has a self defense mechanism built in because it's you know very very deniable even if it. Uh, in cases, of very uh, deep truth, and maybe even a very subversive truth. Uh, but uh, not everyone can pull that off. I wish I <laughs> wish I had that many jokes in me so that I could just, you know, have, have my uh, force field up at all times.
1: Yeah, I think there are certain people who deserve to take themselves very seriously. Like their intellectual capacity is so great that they, they have the right uh, to treat themselves with that level of gravity. And I certainly don't, I mean, I think in my earlier writings, I was trying to be this kind of big brain thought leader. And now I read some of my older articles and I think this is just insufferably dull. <laughs> uh, so I, I tried to stop taking myself seriously. And then I uh, started to enjoy writing and posting a lot more. Uh, so I maybe to some extent it is you know, a protective mechanism, trying not to get into a squabble with people. Uh, but to some extent, it's also just because it's more fun and uh, I don't think I'm so smart and intellectual that my kind of very earnest ideological threads would be worth people following so much.
0: Do you think that there are, you know, a, a handful of uh, especially anonymous posters that deserve to take themselves that seriously or do would, would they be best uh, served to, to take themselves less seriously, if, even in kind of in, in the dissident right? No,
1: probably. I mean... I should be able to name people, but now my brain's gone blank. But no, I mean, there are people who uh, they hit the, you know their own seam of thought and it's really worth mining. Mm-hmm. And if they were trying to be too funny about it, then they would never take it seriously enough to really mine too deeply. They'd just be scratching the surface. I mean, there's a reason we have the word frivolous and it's a synonym of superficial. It's because it doesn't encourage you to do that, uh, that kind of deeper work. So de- there are definitely people who try and, who should be trying to take themselves more seriously. And uh, I try not to counter-signal that too much because you don't want to turn everything into a joke. Uh, but it, it's, it's fairly rare. The amount of people who are capable of uh, having really sophisticated and ingenious ideas and research is relatively small. And I mean, I think especially on the right, we have to accept that because we do think that people... Are unequal, so there are going to be some people who are just more capable of doing that kind of study, and uh, some of the rest of us maybe we have our place in kind of entertaining and synthesizing in discourse, uh, but not as the kind of philosopher king sitting astride the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. There, there is a kind of a temptation because kind of the the medium is uh, it. It almost uh, requires that of you. You know the the effort effort post feels like, you know, whenever I open up Twitter, it's like it's it's luring me to effort post <laughs> to make something that, you know, is going to get shared many, many times. And people say, oh, this is quite a, quite a smart, smart thread you did there. Um, yeah, I'm uh, I haven't really done that in a, in a long while. And yeah, time time doesn't let me. But uh, um I also wanted to uh, kind of tie in uh, the subject of your book, because that's kind of the decade that I grew up in as well, the, the noughties, um, the the zero zeros. Um, and I think there was kind of, I mean, this is probably also Gen Gen X affectation, but also very much in the noughties, this, this concept of, you know, not taking things very seriously. Um, you know, the idea of being kind of irony poisoned, of uh, kind of having this very, a detached view, um, you know based on either like the material conditions of the spaces that we were living in, the, the reality of, of the media that we're interacting with, uh, whatever it was, there was that kind of distance between the self and and what you were you know viewing, so it wasn't very cool to be um, earnest. I think. Mm. So do you see that as, um, as an influence of the decade on you or, or is that, you know, just a kind of a personal uh, preference of yours?
1: No, that's probably true to some extent. And I think the, the amount of kind of ideological fury that we've seen since 2014, 2015, maybe it's partly a consequence of you know, being repressed by that uh, heavy layers of self-imposed detachment, which kind of burst forth. Uh, so, sometimes when you listen to kind of irony posters, I don't know, like Charpo Trap House on the left, it's like uh, you can just feel the, the rage bubbling underneath mm-hmm. these kind of cool sardonic quips. Uh, and you suspect that if they have a couple of beers, it probably breaks forth into uh, just paroxysms of fury. Uh, so it's it's you can take it way too far and it becomes this kind of, quivering pose uh, but I'm, I'm sure i'm sure it was an influence on me the kind of the kind of satire of that decade uh, and yeah just the posting style i grew up with
0: yeah and and the humor i mean that was kind of when the meme was invented which is kind of this um almost like a thought terminating cliche in an image form. It's like, you know, you just kind of accumulate these cliches and the more detached and more, you know, the, even the idea of randomness that was very big in the, you know, the fact that you have these just juxtapositions of images that were, just maybe slightly linked in a, in an awkward way or something like that. That was very big in that. Uh, so I, I wonder what, what do you think the the overall zeitgeist was of the of the Because I mean people have ideas about you know what, what the seventies were about, what the fifties were about, but this is so recent that I don't think people have kind of a crystallized uh, you know, there's no impactful image that, at least for me, I don't know the Backstreet Boys in concert, but that's just maybe just like literally what, what was burnt into my retinas. But um, what, what what is it for you that encompasses the, the noughties?
1: Well, I think it was like intense cultural fragmentation and people just trying to pull together these random assortments of inspiration, like uh, British indie, for example, which sadly is the musical genre I grew up with, it was just this random assortment of aesthetics, like they you know, pull a bit from the swinging 60s, and then they pull a bit from Britpop And if they were especially pretentious, they'd pull a bit from kind of romantic poetry and just make this chaotic assortment of aesthetics, which never really amounted to much because, you know, you can have five different pieces of clothing, and if they're in separate outfits, they look pretty cool. But if you throw them together, it just looks like a crazy person. Uh, and I think the internet fueled this as well, because culture was just let loose across uh, this vast plane of different spheres. So I, I don't think there is that kind of unique noughties culture. You can see little bits, like if you see a kid dressed in black with the big black fringe and you know, black fingernails, you know, he was listening to My Chemical Romance. Mm-hmm. But there's not kind of a naughty, unified noughties aesthetic in the same way we could you know, see a bunch of punk kids and be like, oh, it's the late 70s. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it has that kind of unified uh, zeitgeist.
0: So that was the first, um, the beginnings of the fragmentation, um, because essentially that's, that's what we see right now as well. You, you could have uh, someone who has, you know, a million followers on the internet, people who, you know, even a million subscribers in whatever format, and they could just walk down the street in any, you know, metropolitan area and maybe not be recognized at all, like extremely famous people that exist in their own silos, um, you know, even like, you know, niche internet micro celebrities and things like that. I feel like we've kind of maybe not reached maturity, but we're much more, f- we're further down than the naughtys track, if that's what the naughtys were uh, in, in terms of this fragmentation. Um, I mean, what do you think the, the consequences of this were? I mean, is, is there is more culture in a way. Um, it's just impossible to see uh, from, from just one vantage point.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, I think it probably fueled the amount of disagreement we have between each other now. Uh, people just don't talk to each other as much across different spheres, whether that's good or bad. I don't know. I don't want to sound like the kind of we need to have more impossible conversations, personally. Se- oh no, <laughs> that was definitely a consequence. Um, and yeah, it's it's harder to have a really inspiring cultural force when it's so uh, located in so many different subcultures. Uh, we end up having this kind of overarching monoculture, which is very flat and beige and Ed Sheeran and. Uh, I don't even know who else is a big singer right now, but I'm sure if I heard them in the lift, they'd all kind of blend into one, uh, which is very flat uh, because the more interesting cultural work is done in such specific little niches that we're not exposed to it so much. But I do think one interesting thing about posting is it has become kind of a unifying language. Uh, even, you know, the lefties have stolen the crying wojacks and the uh, Virgin versus Chad Mm-hmm. So on the internet, there almost is like a unified cultural discourse. It's just, it's not reflected so much in real life.
0: Yeah, yeah. There, is, there are kind of levels of, um, of communication. Like, you know, the, the, like you said, the, the basic uh, Wojak template, that's something that uh, your, your uh, average internet dweller might recognize. Um, the Ed Sheeran is something that even your grandma might recognize. But then, zero HP Lovecraft might be someone that very few people recognize, or a lot in, in, in kind of our niche, but um, not in general. So, um, I think it's it's um, it results in a lot of fragmentation, a lot of richness as well, um, and I think it's it's also kind of a what's that called a revealed preference. I feel like people kind of want this this stratification as well. Like um you know, because uh, uh, you know how do people get into these these niches? you know they they look for something that they like and they find something similar and they find something even more similar, and then that kind of there's kind of a funnel that puts you into these these categories and it's based on um, yeah on essentially your personal preference and it's it's wonderful in that way as well, but that's not really how people interact in reality, um, you know you finding someone you agree with. 100% of the time is absolutely impossible in, in meat world. Uh, yet you, you have friends like this, essentially, on the internet. Uh, and I think it's, it's kind of a, a mind-warping type of situation. I don't know. What, what do you think that does to, to, to people and their, their psychology?
1: I think one problem of very kind of niche subcultures is you can lose this urge to transcend whatever you're doing and become kind of greater than your subculture. Uh, so I'm going to use a very weird example, but uh, I'm a big fan of professional wrestling. And not many people are big fans of professional wrestling anymore. And the, the, the fandom has become so kind of closed and small, that it's just incredibly nerdy. And it's like, oh, was that really a nine out of 10 Michinoku driver? And it's like, who cares? Uh, because you're trying to create something which should be more generally enjoyable rather than just enjoyable to a few unwashed Eccentrics. So uh, I think it's good that we all have something that appeals to us, but you also need to retain that urge to escape your little microcosm and achieve something beyond that. Uh, Because, you know, uh, every musical genre started very small and, you know, everyone who went to the first Sex Pistols concert made their own band, but then it blew up into something bigger and that's how if you want to achieve change or, you know, if you want to leave a lasting imprint on the world, that's how you're going to do it. And otherwise, if you're just appealing to the same 20 people, then when everyone moves on to something different, that's where whatever you've created is going to die.
0: Yeah, I feel like this is, you know, the the 15 minutes of fame um, that, that we can produce now. The, the, the fear that I have is that at one point, uh, by us immersing ourselves in these kind of micro-communities, Uh, the bigger thing just doesn't exist like people spend so much time in in the small niche world that you know the the larger context starts to disappear um you know that's probably not the case here in my my small town in Romania and probably not you know where you live in Poland but I feel like in a lot of um you know bigger like denser urban environments a lot of people just you know go to work and then they go and plug into whatever you know world that they've chosen and then sleep, wake up, go to work, do the same thing. Um, and it's um, it's it's hard to kind of see the bigger picture. And the thing is, the bigger picture includes everyone else, you know, the people that you should be, uh, you should be maybe sometimes struggling to get along with, which is an, another art form that people kind of have have lost touch with, you know, to uh, the art of argument, the art of patching over um, a, a friendship that's not perfect, that, you know, you disagree with someone, but it's it's very hard to, um, to, to you know, see eye to eye about everything. And it's, uh, I feel like people would rather just, you know, dump their friends and, and you know, retreat into into the comforts of, of this, you know, virtual world uh, than, than fight through those challenges.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly I try to, Keep my kind of little internet world and my personal world separate because I can't imagine how many friends I'd lose if I, you know, turned up at the karaoke bar and I was like, yeah, I was looking at the timeline today and I saw that you know, at Marta Maid was arguing with at such and such. <laughs> because they just think, what the fuck are you talking about? Uh, and I have these experiences with other people. I was talking to my friend's kid brother, and I was like, What have you been up to? And he said, Oh, me and my Discord community were talking about this role-playing game, which I've never heard of, and how on this level I have no idea what it's about. Uh, And, yeah, if we don't have some kind of more common space where we can interact uh, on a a kind of some basis of mutual connection, we're not going to have those personal relationships because we just don't have the same frames of reference. So uh, we can't get too poisoned by the internet, even if it's hard not to overdose sometimes.
0: Yeah, I think there's there's definitely um kind of a, a saturation of it, or at least I hope I feel like a, a lot of people realize that there's something wrong with, you know, the amount of time they spend attached to small screens, middle sized screens, you know, uh, you know, you go relax in front of the big screen and on the weekends, like there's just, you know, it's it's unsustainable. And a lot of people kind of want to walk it back. But the problem with all this stuff is, at least in my perspective, is that, you know, it's kind of a, a game theoretic dilemma because you can't just, you know, go and hang out with people that are mm-hmm. also not there. So you kind of have to coordinate somehow and just kind of, I don't know, decide together <laughs> to to do more things in, in, in real life. So it's, uh, it's, it's a tough thing. And to be honest, this is the same situation with uh, with relationships as well. Um, you know the d- dating discourse is always big everywhere, and everyone wants to you know figure out how to get a girlfriend and things like that. But it's also kind of an, another one of these game theoretic problems because it's like, okay, you want to get married, nice, but you're essentially you know trying to get married in you know app dating hell world where you know it's very hard to you know coordinate other people who want to get married, and you're you're fighting the algorithm as much as you are whatever culture that pe- these people are uh, involved in. So. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a tough one, um, especially uh, because we kind of live in this uh, you know live and let live type world where you know that's kind of the only the only basis for collaboration is just you know don't don't hurt me and I'm you know I won't hurt you, which uh, sounds great, but is, actually, it actually turns out really bad.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not enough just to turn off the phone because, like you say, somebody could turn off the phone and then they find they're sitting in an empty room or just you know roaming a deserted street because the broader society has neglected the idea of the public space. I mean, uh, the pandemic became a perfect example of that. I think a lot of people just flatly didn't understand why anyone wants to leave uh, their home or uh, the office. Uh, Why is it not enough to just sit at home and get Uber Eats and watch Netflix? I, I think for a lot of people, it just didn't compute. So we need to through our politics to try and foster some kind of policies that are going to renew urban spaces and cultural spaces so that people have these places to make connections uh, rather than just using Twitter or Instagram as their final recourse. So, yeah, it's not not enough to blame the internet because so much else has been left to die. Uh, But obviously, uh, if we're too hooked on the internet, we're not going to have a hope of making those connections.
0: Yeah, it's it's also you know comfort itself. I feel like in the internet, it's like the the ultimate um, tool of um, disintermediation of kind of facilitating all sorts of little little comforts that you think, oh, you know, in itself, the fact that you can you know order whatever product to your door and it comes in a day or two is just a miraculous, wonderful thing. Uh, but once you you know accumulate all sorts of acts there where you don't um, you don't have to get involved in you know the provision of food for yourself you don't have to know the baker where your bread comes from you don't have to interact with anyone in your community if you don't want to um, you know that kind of slowly disentangles you from what it actually means to be human because uh, that mm-hmm. has um, a bit of an element of overcoming in it as well I feel like uh you know we're not just built to eat, sleep, you know, have shelter, be in a warm, cushy place and then slowly expire, you know, while, I don't know, sensors and stuff stimulate us and, and keep us, you know, entertained. Um, that to me, that feels kind of like a very dismal perspective on life. But uh, it seems like all of our politics and all of our culture and everything is just, just kind of pushing us into that direction where it's like bare life, you know. You just want to, you know, be comfortable, chill out, be be as uh, as cushy as possible, and then, you know, that's uh, that's that's the the life that everyone has uh, has the right to.
1: Yeah, and you can. There's an interesting contrast if you look at kind of the economic elites. Uh, there's there's this turn towards a kind of masochistic embrace of the struggle. If you ever watch people do, kind of doing CrossFit or ultra marathons. Yeah. Uh, which is often the very richest among us. It's like they've recognized that struggle is essential to life and forming meaning. And they look at this very kind of concentrated way to just kill their body for a few hours a week, uh, which I you know maybe had loads of health benefits, but I think that is a recognition that actually meaning in life, uh, as you know, as much as I'm coming from a privileged place and saying this meaning in life does depend on pain and on struggle and on, uh, you know, withholding your enjoyment until some future uh, point where you achieve what you want to achieve, because there's no accomplishment without some kind of struggle and some kind of sacrifice. So uh, I think that is recognized in some kind of nascent way, but we don't really have the healthy ways to channel it necessarily.
0: Yeah, yeah, the uh the 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 intermittent fasting and you know it's it's quite f- funny how monastic you know some of our uh you know billionaires and, and people like that have become um it's um it's also uh, you know I think the 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 this this cult of suffering that you're describing is also kind of detached from from the obligations that you know the suffering has to other people like a lot of a lot of times the meaning that you derive is when you sacrifice and suffer for others, but a lot of this stuff is essentially kind of the, the you know the liberal rat race, just uh, you know with a lot more pain in it it 's like oh you can yeah. win prizes by suffering um, it's just feel like, you know, you maybe don't send your mother to a nursing home, you know, if you want to if you want to suffer meaningfully, like, the, for example, just one of the many things, you know, have children and, you know, have some some serious sleep, sleepless nights, you know, dedicated to, to these people. So there, there's many ways to suffer. Uh, but it feels interesting that, you know, it's it's a very um, individualistic kind of suffering that uh, that our elites choose to to engage in.
1: Yeah, I know. There's a lot of focus on kind of means, but not really ends. It's like I used to follow this guy called Jocko Willing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And every, every day at like three o'clock in the morning, he'd post a picture of his watch and he'd be like, yeah, get up. And then he'd post a picture of sweat on the floor and he'd be like, yeah, pain. <laughs> and you'd think, well, this is great, but kind of what are you trying to achieve here? I mean, if this is just to make somebody a more productive office grunt who doesn't you know, fall asleep at 4 p.m. on his desk, Uh, then what are you necessarily achieving here? Uh, I used to read lots of self-improvement blogs that would be like, yeah, if you're a boss, why not install like a treadmill underneath your worker's desk so they can lose weight while they're taking calls? Uh, And like you say, struggle is good, but it's not just good in itself to make you a marginally more effective salesman. Uh, It needs to be directed towards something that we you know is actually going to improve our lives improve the lives of others create something of value even if uh, to some extent it's difficult to determine what that value is
0: yeah yeah i, I, I like that it's a, i think you make a very good point it's kind of this hamster wheel style self improvement there's not really any clear point except Winning or something, winning, I don't know, overcoming yourself, or there's kind of this uh, internal, like, diffuse internal battle that you're waging, Um, I guess, you know, overcoming the discomfort of being fat, or I don't know, but the problem is, like, I've, I've, you know, through the course of my life, obviously, I'm a woman. I've had all sorts of diets and stuff. Like whenever I was, you know, the most, the the skinniest and most lean and wonderfully whatever, uh, you know, fashion model-less person that I could imagine have been, I was essentially plagued by the same demons that I had before that. So, you know, once you get to that point, you know, to the whatever 10% body fat or whatever you're chasing, um, you know, you're you're quite surprised that, you know, uh, life is absolutely identical. And I don't know, maybe you, you don't get, you know, upset when you you know pass by a mirror, but that's very like little marginal <laughs> improvement to to life, so I think a, a lot of people when they get to the end of the self improvement uh you know hamster wheel when when they've intermittently fasted as much as they could and then <laughs> all of that stuff it it's still you know the, the the chasm opens still the abyss is still there, and it's still you know whispering at you <laughs> uh so um i don't know i think that's i think a lot of people are are um, you know there's there's a certain Um, Because a lot of people call this, um, what's that called? Self-improvement porn or, you know, uh, optimization porn or things like that. It's essentially kind of the the same uh, dynamic where... If you never get there, if you never really, you know, go out with that type of woman, or if you never, uh, you know, actually get there, it's still, it still doesn't lose its appeal. But once you win the prizes, it's instantly kind of dispels its uh, its its fascination. Um, I think that you know the the internet's full of of uh, ideas like that. You know, this is a shining city on the hill that you might you know get as a prize eventually if you're if you're good enough, if you're if you wake up at 3 a.m. enough and sweat on the floor and do all the, all the uh, necessary sacrifices to get there. Uh, but yeah, the reality is once you get there, there's not really anything there.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, you need to, you need to have the thing, the, the concrete thing that you're struggling to achieve uh, that is going to satisfy your ambitions or your dreams. So I, I'm not the right person to tell people what that is because uh, I'm not that good a person. But <laughs> otherwise, like you say, If you just pick some completely arbitrary goal, once you achieve it, the satisfaction is going to wear off uh, in a couple of days, at least. I think that's why, you know, so many rich people, you know, you save up all your life to buy a boat and then you think, oh, damn it, he's got a bigger boat. Uh, And what if I had a gold boat? And there's just never, there's never any satisfaction. Yeah. uh, At the end of the accomplishment.
0: The thing is, you know, whenever you get richer, you you tend to move into a richer neighborhood and then you're suddenly poor. Um and then your wife gets pissed off because you know, why do we have the smallest house in the rich neighborhood? You we need to work again, you know, start again working up to the biggest house <laughs> in the rich neighborhood. Yeah, it's it's always very relative to the to the circumstances you're in. Um yeah, unfortunately. Um I also wanted to ask you about, um, the, uh, you had a tweet here and I thought it was really, uh, interesting about identity and, uh, you know, um, a lot of modern wrangling about identity is the result of people struggling to cope with the fact that they are not especially interesting. (laughs) Um, and I think that's, that's kind of the, the same, you know, um, kind of the same thought bubble as the, the, you know, the, the commercialized city on the hill uh, that, that, you know, you see in, on the internet, you know, the idea that there's something there that you can be, you, you, uh, through your becoming, you can reach some transcendent state uh, that, you know, you don't have now. But if you do X or Y, then, you know, then you'll, you'll, you'll have this valuable state.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because when I say being interesting, it's like, if you have a group of friends, you are all interesting to each other. Uh, so it's not that everyone should feel bad and like, oh, I'm a terrible, boring person, because we make each other interesting through our relationships. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're interesting to a million other people. Uh, I remember reading Christopher Hitchens's autobiography. And of course, he had a very rich, interesting life. He went to all kinds of different places. But then he had this chapter that was about his group of friends like Martin Amos and Salman Rushdie. And it was all about their kind of in-jokes which clearly to each other was fascinating. But to me, the reader who doesn't know them and wasn't there at these pompous dinners was just mind-numbingly <laughs> dark.
0: I remember that chapter. I think, he confused, chapter. These, yes, yeah, I think he confused
1: these different ways of being interesting. Like me and my best friend, our drinking stories to each other, uh, just wonderful and hilarious. But if I was trying to say to you, like, yeah, one night we were in this bar that you don't know, with these people you've never met it would be insufferable so uh, now we don't have those closer connections we're just faced with these kind of hundreds of thousands of strangers and we want to be interesting to all of them uh, and we don't have that capacity because a kind of general transcendent interestingness that makes someone you know a professional film director or something it's 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 unfairly unevenly distributed among very few people uh so maybe that's one reason why we have these explosions of identities and uh you know traumas and needs that must be met because people are just scrambling over each other to be worthy of people's attention
0: yeah because it's it's interesting where the the seat of status is nowadays it used to be very much you know almost like in high school you know you had a group of people around you there were some top dogs, some people in the middle, and you really didn't want to be at the bottom, and everyone was kind of scrambling to to lift their status. But it was a very limited group of people. I don't know, 10, 15, 20 maybe. Uh, now, you know, the the sphere of comparison, uh, especially if you're interested in anything, you know, if you're a writer, then of course, you know, you're comparing yourself with, you know, the, the greatest writers on earth. If you're interested in cinema, you know, you, you, people are just kind of plagued by much more effective uh, kind of, uh, phantoms of of success they're much more they're much bigger much more incredibly scary uh and there's uh there's very very little way of uh of standing out in in these crowds
1: yeah and i think in our spheres just to go back to something we were talking about earlier as well it's like we want to be interesting to people all the time whereas you know if you had a novelist a hundred years ago i'm sure they went for years with nobody talking about And then you'd bring out a new novel, and for the time when the educated classes were reading it, you were suddenly very interesting. Whereas with something like Twitter or you know, weekly podcasts, weekly newsletters, we want to grab people's attention all the time. So that must be one reason why we have so much drama and so many bad takes, because uh, we don't have this capacity for just the endless production of compelling output. Uh, but we we really want to, so we we we're grasping for reasons for people to read us or for people to listen to us. When actually, many people, it would probably be better if they had the opportunity to go and work on some longer term project, uh, which would be really worthy of people's attention a year or two years into the future.
0: Yeah, and it's it's also that um, the fact that the internet's not very kind to uh, to people who don't reinvent themselves and to not people don't have like a continuous, interesting intellectual output. I mean, to me, the the kind of the rise and fall of Jordan Peterson seems to be uh, kind of have that that path. You know, he's someone who, you know, undoubtedly came and and presented a, a very unique, you know, he, he didn't invent these ideas, but he's definitely the most effective um, communicator of uh, an, an alternative to kind of the, the you know, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens type hegemony that had, you know, every thinking person in its uh, spell for a very long time. Um, And, you know, he did it really well. And it was a lot of new stuff, a lot of, you know, a thousand flowers bloomed after him. But the thing is, you know, the man ran out of ideas. You know, he he worked in silence for, what, 20 years to write Maps of Meaning, to to put out all of his um, courses and all this type of stuff. And at one point, you know, he kind of told you pretty much all there is to, to tell, you know, he put out 12 rules, you know, he somehow cranked out another 12 rules, <laughs> you know, at that point, it's, you know, it's a little bit repetitive. And, uh, and the internet does not like that. You know, people, it's, it seemed like, you know, the, the, the fortune soured. Um, and yeah, you know, now people don't really want to be associated with, you know, people on the cutting edge. They want to be associated with Jordan Peterson. Though I think he's, you know, a lot of them are there because, because of him. But yeah, it's a, it's a very, very short cycle of of fan, of fame on the internet.
1: Yeah. And especially when you are, you know, selling yourself as a brand. Yeah. Because you are just going to get tedious. Whereas uh, I hope for myself that if you're selling some kind of creative output, uh, if you're curious enough, you can keep exploring different subjects would be, which would be interesting to people, not because of who you are, but because of what you do it. Or if you're, you know, a podcaster, you have more interesting guests. If you're a uh, fiction writer, you have more interesting stories. So people can still be interested in the work, even if they're not really fascinated by, you know, whoever you happen to be.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: you still have that, uh, that, that, that output.
0: Yeah, it is interesting, though, because in a way, um, you know, Jordan Peterson had had his books, he had his kind of I don't know, kind of philosophical output as well, you know, maps of meaning and and things like that. And for a while he was that type of person until he had this, you know, semi-heroic act that thrust him into the the limelight. And then to be honest, he kind of took it and and ran with it. Um, But... I don't know it's a it it i feel in his case it would have been almost impossible to do the you know stepping aside thing and and you know just you know cranking out output uh and it also helped his reach immensely you know because he was this um heroic figure you know so I think there's kind of um it's a bit of a deal with the devil when you put yourself out there um as a person uh, because people are tend to be more interested in in people and they're also probably more open to getting your message or to receiving whatever intellectual output you put out there. So it's, it's always a, a tricky thing to navigate. And like I said, sometimes it's not even your choice if you're going to be, uh, if you're going to become that person. Sometimes you just kind of like pulled into it because you did something or said something that's so jarring that you become the incarnation of that thought, like, like he was, you know, just saying, you know, he'll, he's not going to use compelled speech. And then you know, every, everything kind of blew up.
1: Yeah, have, he had a very magnetic personality. I mean, I live in a relatively small Polish town and it's completely inconceivable a random friend would be like, yeah, I was, you know, I was uh, reading a great article by, I'm trying to think of like, uh, so I, I was reading Menchus Moldbug the other day. That would never happen. But I did have random people saying to me, Oh, I've been watching this guy called Jordan Peterson on YouTube. Uh, so there was something about his kind of paternal, pastoral bearing that was very attractive to people. So yeah, I guess I guess for some people, if you do have that kind of charisma, uh, you're you're going to become the story whether you like it or not.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a strange, um, yeah, a strange medium, the internet, <laughs> to be honest. Um. Yeah, I, I I think about this all the time myself because you know, like I, I I try to not put out too much of myself, but I am on video every week, so I guess you know that's the, you know the cat's out of the bag with that one, unfortunately. <laughs> um. I also want to ask you about kind of the the changing landscape of magazines. I mean, you've, you've written for all the, you know, big conservative, semi-conservative, you know, like Quillette kind of is in its own space as well. Uh, it's changed as well. I feel uh, a lot like um, Quillette used to be kind of the, the, the mouthpiece of the IDW crowd uh, and it was quite more spicy. And I feel like, it, you know, the, the spice content has been... Uh, Changed a little bit, uh, and now there's a new magazine out, uh, Compact, which is pretty much kind of a post liberal. You know, the, the the magazine of the of post liberalism at the moment. Um, I mean, how do you see the the, um, the the this this landscape changing? You know, it's is it are there um, a lot of good um, outlets nowadays, or like more? Um, I don't know, more open to to spicier ideas. Uh, because it felt to me like, you know, it's, it's quite, ch- there's a lot of churn now happening in, in terms of what magazines are out there and, and who publishes what.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunities for people who, if they want to write, I mean, like you say, it's compact. But I think a lot of other magazines are more open to uh, slightly more offbeat takes. I mean, I write for uh, Spectator World. Spectator is one of the most venerable magazines in uh, British history. And I mean, I was reading an article on Spectator World by a guy called Breast Milk Enjoyer.
0: Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> I know Breast Milk Enjoyer.
1: <laughs> so I, I think you know, there, is more, there, there are more openings for you know, heterodox or dissident, eccentric uh, writers. How sustainable these kind of magazines are, uh, given the difficulty of monetizing things, is another question. I mean, um, I know that Compact has a subscription model, and I don't know, I don't know how many people are going to subscribe. I hope a lot because it's always good to have uh, more opportunities for readers and more opportunities for writers. But unless you have a kind of Peter Thiel behind you or you manage to build up so much buzz that you get a lot of subscribers, it's not easy to, it's not easy to last. Uh, so for, for writers and readers, it's a, it's a good time because there is such a wide landscape and people are so desperate for attention that they'll take more risks. But I, I, I'm not sure how sustainable it is. I w- I'd rather be a writer than an editor, let's say.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you you said a, a a very good thing. Like you know, people are are desperate for attention. And do you think that's um that the the openness to to more you know to the spicier reaches of the internet is is partly driven by that as well? The fact that it's very hard to monetize, and you know, eyeballs are inevitably attracted by by fresh takes. Um, is... yeah, I mean,
1: there's a, lot, there's a lot more energy on that side of Twitter. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Zero H.P. Lovecraft, the amount of interest he got in his first book, like if a major publishing imprint had half of that interest in a debut novelist, they would be cracking open champagne bottles. It just doesn't happen. Uh, so I, I think there is an urge to capture that kind of, uh, that energy and that, uh, uh, that enthusiasm. Because, you know, the average reader is just going to browse an article they followed from Facebook and then never come back. Whereas those people who are more invested in the discourse uh, might be more more valuable. So uh, I think there are more opportunities for uh, more alternative perspectives, let's say. Mm-hmm.
0: There's just always kind of the, the fear that, um, you know, opening up these spaces to to mainstream um audiences to mainstream appeal to mainstream publications like you know like the the recent vanity fair article which was uh surprisingly fair <laughs> actually uh but still a lot it led to a lot of infighting and a lot of questions about who's who's paying who and things like that um it's uh, it does feel like um there's kind of this uh this opening to to co-opt the movement to kind of sanitize Mm. it and you know present a a very cool edgy you know i think my friend default friend says you know the bap BAP mug at at walmart uh you know bronze age mindset uh you know (laughs) i don't know cozies and stuff that you can buy for your uh, edgy friends um you know all of this stuff you know inevitably gets commoditized in some way i mean i Commoditized in a way because they sell subscriptions for, you know, early access to this podcast. But uh, it's um, there is there is something that um, a, a wider appeal takes from from kind of a dissident dissident, um, I don't know, energy. So I wonder how do you think that that is, is affecting the space or is it is it starting to happen or has it already happened?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're going to see more people kind of hitching their wagon to it. Uh, It's it's partly just natural. I mean, I can't imagine how Johnny Rotten felt when he was watching Blink-182 and hearing that it was a punk band. I mean, there's this kind of... It's not even a political thing. It's just the the, the more exposure something gets, the more it gets watered down to try and appeal to other people. So that's definitely a danger. And then you do get, as much as it's kind of an uh, empty, windy debate about who is and who isn't a grifter, uh, it's Mm going to happen. Yeah. Anytime you have some kind of subculture, you get people trying to capture it and monetize it. So it's definitely something to, to be wary of. Uh, but also if people are too wary of it, then you ju- it just descends into inviting and nobody trusting other people. And, uh, you know, he's backed by Teal. No, he's backed by Teal. And you're mm-hmm. not going to accomplish anything that way. So uh, I think if people are producing creative work, they just need to focus on uh, maximizing their own potential trying to block out any influences that might encourage them to you know, make what they're doing uh, more compromised and try to be the best possible versions of themselves. And then uh, if that appeals to other people, that's great. Uh, and if it doesn't, then they have the satisfaction of knowing that they didn't uh, sell out whatever they wanted to accomplish. But uh, if you focus too much on the process rather than the ends, uh, you're going to get lost either way.
0: Yeah, that's that's really good advice. Um, you know, I, I'm at the point where if I do post something on online, I I posted ghost, and then I don't necessarily engage as much as I used to. Uh, but there is there is a benefit to to the lurking, to the reading. You know, a lot of the ideas that I've kind of had and, and refined to, throughout the years, I've I've had through just like spending enormous amounts on Twitter and just reading a lot of random stuff. And it does kind of help, you know, the, the creative ferment and stuff. So it's, it's, it's hard. Uh, I do now, nowadays I do tend to read more, more books. I've just kind of moved on to, to, to reading books just because it's, you know, it's, it's not as fragmented. It doesn't really drive me as crazy as, uh, as the internet does. Um, But there is something, there's something good in these spaces, you know, that's why people frequent them. Um, And I, I wish I could, you know, get the good without the bad, but unfortunately you kind of get dragged into seeing, you know, what, what exactly, what, what, what are the beefs of the day? Who's warring with whom? Um, Yeah. Unfortunately I'm, I'm not immune to it.
1: I think like you say, it's important not to feel like you need to have an opinion on everything. Mm -hmm. Like, if you've ever had like a local bar, you know there are going to be people there that you don't necessarily like. But that doesn't mean you have to talk to them or about them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when there's this kind of endless, is this person good? Is this person bad? Is this person problematic? Is this person a grifter? You don't need to engage it. I think one of the reasons I don't have beefs is because a lot of the time, if I don't really like someone or I, you know, uh, I, I, I don't enjoy someone's stuff, I don't feel this obligation to let that be known. Uh, I mean, I, one time I had this one writer who was writing for Quillette and that kind of magazines. And I just, I hated his guts. Everything he posted <laughs> made me puke, but yeah, I was like, this is not, I'm not going to achieve any He's like a marginal writer. I'm not going to achieve anything by starting a fight about this. So, uh, it would be impossible for anybody to identify that because I never mentioned it. <laughs> uh, so like I say, there's, there's a good space for criticism. If you think someone is, you know, if you think someone is massively overrated or if Someone's being untruthful, or uh, someone's just a bad actor. It's good to say it, uh, but you don't need to have an opinion about everyone and everything. And if you feel compelled to, then you might just get dragged into negativity.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a, a bit of a, a dark, you know, uh, abyss. Once once you once you get pulled into that, because. Um, there is one at least one beef a day. One be one large beef a day with many other other sub beefs and you know, uh alliances and all sorts of things, you know, who's with whom and uh you know, I could I could always tell that, you know, I've um I've overstepped something if, you know, I lose mutuals and it's just it's it's very it's it's quite tedious <laughs> but yeah but you know also, it's also appealing in a way because you know it's it's kind of the only outlet for tribal drama that you know the the human soul still has left um and it's, it feels like it's high stakes when you're engaging in it it's like oh yeah you know in in group out group Coalition. Also, we are we are red pilled on the friend enemy distinction, which makes it much much easier to do. So, yeah, it's a, it's 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 ridiculous at one point, and that's for sure. Um, before I let you go, I want to ask you the question of the show. This is a question that everyone gets. So. Um, don't don't feel, you know, frazzled by it. You know, take your time thinking about it if, if you haven't. Uh, it's um, do you have a subversive thinker that you think is underrated? You know, it could be a writer. It could be uh, you know, any sort of person, talk show host that you think uh, people should look into or, or, uh, or look up.
1: Um, that's a really good question. Goodness me. Well, there's like 20 different Twitter accounts I could recommend.
0: Okay. But I think,
1: uh, if I'm, if I'm going to recommend like a thinker, uh, when I first was forming the opinions I now have, uh, I read this random book by an English philosopher called John Gray. It was mm-hmm. called Straw Dogs.
0: I love Straw Dogs. Uh, it's one of my favorite books. Uh, which yeah. is
1: yeah, an excellent book. And I think now John Gray, maybe he's reached the point where, yeah, he's just saying everything he used to say again and again and again. And Now I think if you encounter his work, it could seem quite stale and unimpressive. But if you went back and read his books like Straw Dogs, uh, Black Mass, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which was an interesting book about uh, the war on terror and new atheism, and so on, Enlightenment's Wake, which was a book about uh, liberalism, Uh, they're, they're surprisingly subversive because now he has been kind of assimilated into the discourse, and you can read his latest take on the EU and stuff, and it's not so interesting, but if you go back and read his earlier books, really, really interesting and challenging stuff. And I don't necessarily agree with the level of pessimism in there, but um, uh, it's definitely worth worth grappling with philosophically. So, uh, I think yeah. I'd recommend those three books.
0: Yeah, he's a uh, he's someone I've been trying very hard to get on the on the podcast. Uh, he's he's very well gatekept by, by whoever is managing his publicity. I've been trying through back channels, but no, unfortunately, uh, he hasn't he hasn't answered my, my disparate calls yet. Yeah, I think he's um he's a very interesting thinker, especially because I feel, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but after all of this thinking about liberalism, he still in a way considers himself a liberal. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. one of one of the one of the good ones or something like that. Uh, But he's trying to kind of dispel any sort of mythology inherent in liberalism and kind of show the religious roots of, of liberalism in the people who who see it as kind of a religious system, because most people who believe in liberalism have. Religious assumptions about it, you know, about progress, about you know the direction of history, about all sorts of things that are leaps of faith, obviously. But you know, people have internalized them as you know just common sense. You know, that's that's how things go. So yeah, I think he's you know I agree with you. He's one of the probably the most interesting post-liberal thinkers, uh, especially if you if you don't have any ideas on the subject and you really want to get a good feeling about you know the um, kind of the the assumptions uh, that we all carry with us. And he really, he, he does a good job at dispelling those. So anyway, I yeah. I saw him in the
1: street one time, just walking through uh, Bath, where I grew up in England.
0: Oh, really? Uh,
1: and I wanted to go and say hello, but then I thought from his perspective, imagine if he's just having a lovely stroll with his wife and then some random guy accosts him and is like, I love your work on anti-humanism. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what you want to hear on a post deal. So I, I left him alone, but I was, uh, I was, I was intellectually starstruck in my, in my, in my youthful way.
0: Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah. He's probably just borderline recognizable to people, uh, in the field. I remember really not liking him cause he had like some very, um, uh, very public fights with Richard Dawkins when I was in my, you know, new atheist phase. And I was like, I, I remember just looking at his essays and I was, I couldn't even read them. I was like, impossible. How could you disagree with with the great Richard Dawkins? Um, yeah. Inter- interesting how, how things change. Um, and also Bath, what a beautiful place. That's, that must've been, yeah. uh, just one wonderful, wonderful city
1: well the funny thing is when i grew up there i thought it was just normal because you know whatever whatever it is you're in your childhood you think that's just how the world is yeah uh so i was like yeah you know probably you know everywhere is like this and now i go home or uh, i go back to bath and i look around this is yeah unbelievable <laughs> uh so yeah it
0: is hopefully it stays that way yeah it's uh it's an incredible place um Anyway, I thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I'm very happy we got to do this. Um, and uh, yeah, I want people to uh, check out your Substack, the Zone. Um, I will link it in the show notes and also the book, uh, The, the Naughties, uh, 11 Echoes of a Dismal Decade. Thank you. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.